Last week I introduced Spotlight, which will be a recurring series on the podcast. Spotlight was a section in the strange early 1980s magazine Protect and Survive Monthly, and it featured tiny little snippets of nuclear war and civil defence related news from around Britain. Today we look at the rest of the Spotlight news from the January 1981 issue. Our first bit of news comes from Ryther, which is a Yorkshire village lying roughly between Leeds and York. Ryther. Mr Michael Noble, owner of Ryther Hall, is planning on building a large survival complex, which would include a cinema and medical centre. Okay, so this was the early 80s, and DIY and home improvement was all the rage. It was the go-getting, materialistic era. And what better way to show off your wealth and taste than in tarting up your home? Better still, why not build an extension or dig downwards and create a fancy underground gym? Or perhaps what we would now call one of those man caves? Well, of course, a lot of trends which emerge in Britain get started in America and then filtered down to us, and this was no exception. In the 1960s, as we've discussed previously on this podcast, there was a shelter craze, and many Americans who had the space in the back garden, and the money, were building fallout shelters, either in the garden or by extending down and reinforcing their basement. Now, building something which can protect your family, perhaps, from the horrors of nuclear fallout, was quite a feat and would have involved a lot of building work and expense. But, unlike a new pool or a new conservatory, you can't show it off to the neighbours. A fallout shelter is a miserable, eerie, frightening space. So you've spent all that money and you've got nothing to show for it. Nothing except a chamber which, hopefully will never be used. So the consumer who's splashed the cash has nothing to show off. Indeed, your neighbours might not even know about your new shelter's existence. It was reported in California that the city authorities had no idea how many shelters were in the city, as so many of them had been built in secret. Presumably by private citizens worried that... Desperate neighbours might try to gain access using violence if the sirens ever blared and they found themselves without. 
it later emerged that some people had had the necessary construction work deliberately hidden by simultaneously having a pool built in the garden or by pretending to the neighbours that they were simply renovating the basement. So some people would have been quite happy to have built their shelter and kept it nice and quiet. See the famous Twilight Zone episode, The Shelter, for an example of what might happen if you have a fallout shelter, but your terrified neighbours don't. Jerry, oh God, please God protect you, Jerry. It's out of my hands. It's simply out of my hands. It's got to be gone. It's got to be gone. There's no time. It'll land any minute. I just know it'll land any minute. You won't let anybody in. Oh, well, we do. I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to find one basement to go to work on that. I tell you, it just isn't fair. He's down there in a bomb shelter perfectly safe while I kids have to sit around and wait for a bomb to drop. Why don't we just go down to his basement and break down the door? Come on, let's get it in there. But some people, of course, they can't help themselves. They like to show off their wealth and their home. Imagine if those 1960s Americans building their shelters had had Instagram. Hashtag shelter style. So for those who were happy to let family and neighbours know they had a shelter, but weren't exactly keen on showing guests around a Spartan bunker lined with shelves and blankets and with a toilet squatting in the corner... You could get a specialist builder in who would give your shelter a dual purpose. Turn it into a cinema or a music room or a basement playroom. And then, if the day ever comes, just clear out the toys and the comfortable armchairs, bring in the tins and the disinfectant, and it's a fallout shelter once again. This idea reached Britain and reached its peak of popularity in the early 80s, the era of our magazine, Protect and Survive Monthly. Those who've read the magazines, those who've had that particular joy, will know that they were quite busy with adverts. I suppose you can't blame them for cramming the pages with ads. It was, after all, a niche interest. So they were never going to make a lot of money purely on the income from subscribers alone. And so the magazine was very heavy with ads, many of which are now quite a joy to read. My favourite is the advert from Turner Construction, which declares, with an exclamation mark, We'll dig your hole! But there were other adverts which offered something more elaborate than a hole, and that was a shelter which can be used in peacetime. A shelter which allows you to Get your money's worth and, if you want, invite the neighbours round. I'll read some of those adverts to you which stress the dual purpose of these fancier shelters. Peacetime building for wartime use, says one. It goes on. Your neighbours will admire your beautiful new home extension. They need never know that it's a shelter. A safe room that can quickly be converted to withstand nuclear or biochemical conventional war and riots. In peacetime, you use the room as a dining area or study. The storage space we provide 
houses the air purification system and survival supplies. This advert pictures a little blocky building which has a lovely tree growing beside it and a carriage lantern affixed to the wall. Classic 1980s symbol of being middle class. I think Alexi Sale made the joke that um, in the 80s, if your house had carriage lanterns outside, it simply said to burglars, please break in and steal my VCR. So this little house uh, looks very picturesque, if a bit blocky and unimaginative. Uh, Lovely tree growing next to it, lanterns outside, and a sweet little winding path leads to the door. All looks quite nice and innocent. But this blocky little building, of course, is not what it seems. The advert tells us. This is how the Swedes build some of their shelters. The blast door is hidden by architectural cladding. The windows are sealed with elements that have undergone simulated nuclear blast tests. The shelter can be made airtight. We will teach you how to combat carbon monoxide poisoning during a possible firestorm and how to monitor radiation levels. Another advert from a company called Mole Shelters says, Extension now! Shelter if... And it lists all the pleasant, civilised uses to which you can put your new shelter, all of which will boost your home's value and let you show off to the neighbours when they come round for, oh, I don't know, Findus crispy pancakes and baby sham. It lists music room, sauna, workshop, dark room, study, cinema, cellar, games room, TV room, strong room, changing room for your swimming pool, or just a spare room. So the adverts in the magazine are offering two different types of shelter. You've got the basic, which is dig a hole and we'll cover it up for you. (laughs) Or there is the elaborate, turn it into a fancy um, study space or dining area. And in the blink of an eye, it can become a fallout shelter. So the little snippet of news we read out initially from Rive said that Mr Michael Noble was seeking to do the same, but on a grander scale, we assume, for Rive Hall. A search of the local newspapers did turn up Michael Noble again, this time a few months earlier. He appears in October 1980, where the news was that he was planning to build, quote, Britain's first underground nuclear community. The news article says he was awaiting planning permission from Selby Council. And the article gives a few more details of what he was hoping to build beneath Rive Hall. I quote from the article here. Britain's first underground nuclear community with accommodation for 50 families near the home of Mr Michael Noble. The 50 shelters to be sold for £10,000 each to would-be survivors of the nuclear holocaust will be linked to a cinema, a medical centre, generators, food, water and even facilities for pets. The article goes on, such shelters are already socially chic. Liz Taylor has one in which she stores her furs. In America, a discotheque nuclear shelter has been built for people who wish to dance doomsday away. Now, of course, Michael Noble's shelter, if it was ever brought to completion, seems like a money-making scheme. 
ask people to buy one of your shelters in your so-called underground community. And hopefully the day will come where you never need to use it. But uh, whether you use it or not, Mr Noble above ground has certainly made his money. There was a similar project in 1984, a couple of years later of course, which received far more media attention than the proposed community under Wraith Hall. This was a scheme to build a community of nuclear survivors beneath the grand country home of John Emin in Sussex. And this one was built and completed. The Times reports that, quote, when he advertised vacancies, he received 240 replies within a few days. You had to apply to join Mr John Emin's community. You had to pay, of course, but you also had to apply. Handing over money wasn't good enough, as we'll explain here. From the Times article, we see that Mr Emin intended his underground community not just as a, a money maker, but as a base from which to rebuild post-nuclear society. So to do this, he placed adverts for applicants in the, amongst other places, the British Medical Journal, hoping to get applications from doctors. The Times says, quote, Replies came from two anaesthetists, a neurologist and more than one surgeon. One of them said, There is nothing so useless as a dead surgeon. Mr Emin took the point. Besides doctors, uh, Mr Emin said he was also seeking applications from practical people with useful skills in rebuilding society. He says, quote, There is nothing attractive about people with money who merely want to be looked after. We will be advertising again for people with skills. If you advertise a place for £6,000 and someone said, here's my £6,000, I wouldn't take it that easily. Mr Emin would first see what the applicant could do. Was he helpful? Did he realise he might be killed by people wanting to come in? The finished uh, shelter community beneath his home in Sussex certainly seemed superior to our usual image of a whitewashed underground block crammed with bedding and bottles. The article says, quote, The main living room, where guests will spend most of their time, is already fitted with a tasteful £3,000 hardwood ceiling. Glass fibre behind the sheets of plastic steel decorating the wall prevents condensation and helps acoustics. A carpet has yet to be laid, but there is wiring for quadraphonic sound, and Mr Emin has plans for the screening of pictures to remind people of what the outside world looked like before they arrived. This all feeds into our next news piece. I'll read it to you. Hartlip, Sittingbourne. Edward Stafford has formed Survival, the National Campaign for Nuclear Fallout Shelters. His booklet, 75p, covers types of shelters, correct use of materials and effective blast and fallout. He said that the government should recognise the importance of these shelters as refuge from peacetime disasters. Now there's nothing much going on in the first part of that paragraph, As we know, plenty of companies and individuals popped up in the early 80s trying to make money from our nuclear anxiety. And, as we've discussed, 
Protect and Survive Monthly was full of their adverts. Buy your shelters, get our ration packs, grab our radiation meters, make sure you've got this instruction manual, this first aid kit. Buy, 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 money, money, money. It was the 80s, after all. Spending might get you ahead and keep you safe. So there were plenty of voices like Mr Stafford's clamouring for shelters to be bought and built and provided. But it just never caught on in Britain as it did across the pond. Sure, a few people had shelters built, but they were always the exception. There was no shelter craze. And of course, we know that the government were never going to provide them because the cost would have been astronomical. But Mr Stafford, in campaigning for nuclear shelters, says here that the government should recognise the importance of shelters as refuge from peacetime disasters. Now, that's quite interesting. A nuclear shelter with a dual purpose. We just talked about building shelters that could also serve as studies or dining areas or man caves. But here, Mr Stafford is suggesting build it for nuclear war, certainly. But you can also duck inside for a bit of peace, a bit of shelter, a bit of safety, if there's a peacetime disaster. A hurricane, riots, uh, a nuclear power plant exploding in the Soviet Union. Things which, of course, did happen in the 1980s. In Britain, we were affected by Chernobyl fallout. And we did have terrible riots in London and Liverpool. And we even had a hurricane, despite Michael Fish telling us not to worry. Good afternoon to you. Earlier on today, apparently, a woman rang the BBC and said she heard that there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry, there isn't. So sure, we can laugh at poor Michael Fish getting it so famously wrong on the BBC, but Britain in the 80s did seem to be plagued with a series of terrible disasters in that decade. Lockerbie, the King's Cross fire, Hillsborough, the Bradford Stadium fire, the Clapham rail crash... Kegworth plane crash, the Marchioness sinking. Not all of these, of course, necessitating the use of shelters, but the concept of disaster was on people's minds. The idea that our green and pleasant land could just crack beneath our feet. So some people were trying to flog shelters because you could make use of them, as a cinema or a study or a basement, of course, but others were trying to say there's plenty of fear in peacetime, never mind in nuclear war, and that alone justifies shelters, havens, satisfies the natural human instinct, perhaps to crawl somewhere safe. Even if the disaster isn't unfolding on your doorstep. If you think of Lockerbie, for example, um, Lock- I was eight when Lockerbie happened. It happened, of course, down in um, Dumfries and Galloway. I was up in Glasgow, but Because it was in Scotland, I felt, as a child, of course, you know, not particularly logical, but I felt threatened by it because it felt near because it was happening in Scotland. These famous disasters should, I felt, happen somewhere equally famous and big and important, not little old Lockerbie. So yes, even though it wasn't near Glasgow and, of course, didn't threaten me, I felt the threat. And surely that's the nature of terrorism, of course. It's supposed to instil terror, even if it doesn't directly affect you. So yes, even though a peacetime shelter wouldn't have been much use, it may have satisfied some human need. Um, A glance, however, at the list of disasters I've just read out, which 
We felt Britain suggests the thing that the survivors needed was, of course, speedy medical assistance. And then for those who were without physical injury, a rest centre or a warm and comfortable gathering space to be folded in a blanket, have some tea and be able to phone your relatives. So the simple solution was required, tea and sympathy. Not a hole in the ground wrapped in reinforced concrete and ventilation ducts. Here is our next piece of nuclear news. Harwell. Radioactive dust from the nuclear test in the Chinese desert has been picked up by the atomic research establishment here. The fresh nuclear fission dust from the Chinese explosion was picked up by special air filters on the roof of the centre. Barium-140, a good early indication of bomb fallout, was the first substance to be identified. Now, the Chinese were relatively secretive, of course, about the nuclear tests, but we were able to determine that this particular explosion... Now, the Chinese were secretive, of course, about their nuclear tests, but we are able to determine that this particular explosion, which was picked up by Harwell, was the world's last atmospheric test, and it occurred on 16th of October 1980, taking a couple of months, of course, for the fallout to begin making itself known in Britain. This is similar, of course, to how the world found out about the Chernobyl disaster. The Soviets were hardly falling over themselves to inform the outside world, and so the West's first confirmation that something had gone wrong came from a nuclear plant in Sweden, whose radiation detectors alerted the staff to abnormally high levels. Of course, they initially assumed something had gone wrong at the plant, but investigation showed the fallout cloud had emerged from the Soviet Union. And so when China exploded the world's last, uh, hopefully, atmospheric test, fallout drifted out across the globe, reaching us in January. The Swedish National Defence Research Institute confirmed that there were 49 nuclear tests around the world in that year, but the Chinese one was the only one which was exploded in the atmosphere. By this time, the US, UK and Soviet Union were thankfully bound by the partial test ban of 1963, which banned tests underwater, in the atmosphere and in space. This treaty was spurred largely because of rising public awareness of the fallout these tests were throwing up into the atmosphere. But China, and yes, France, had not signed up. China got the atomic bomb in 1964 and quickly followed with a hydrogen bomb in 1967. Even though Mao Zedong had famously been quite dismissive of nuclear weapons, calling them paper tigers. He said, The atom bomb is a paper tiger, which the US reactionaries use to scare people. It looks terrible, but in fact it isn't. Of course the atom bomb is a weapon of mass slaughter, but the outcome of a war is decided by the people, not by one or two types of weapon. Well, I hope you enjoyed our look at the nuclear news from January 1981. Next Monday, I think we'll go back to Threads for another of our four minutes of Threads episodes. But if you can't wait till then, I will be releasing another bonus podcast during the week for patrons. 
It was my birthday yesterday, 12th of December, so I thought I'd dip into the archives and see what was happening on 12th of December throughout the years. Well, there was a big nuclear war story on 12th of December 1983. It was the day after, the day after, as The Guardian put it, the day after the film had been given its UK broadcast. And the papers were full of audience reaction to the film, but the government, eager to quell any disquiet or fear, eager to block any support for CND, which might rise up after watching it, they sent big Michael Heseltine out onto the airwaves to bat away any concerns and try and smooth everything over. Nothing to see here, everyone. It's only total nuclear war. I wonder what his reaction was to threads. Uh, well, there's plenty to discuss there. So I'm going to do a podcast on that uh, during the week. If you want access to these bonus episodes, it's just £2.50 a month. It's easy to sign up and you can cancel at any time. Not that you would want to, I hope. So go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and you can sign up there. And let me say hello and welcome to my newest patrons, Richard Trainer, Ian Collinson and Colin Chalmers. Thank you everyone for listening.